Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Film Haven Reviews. I am your host Sawyer as always, and uh, hey, you made it. It's 2024. We made it through another year. Now it's time to do it again. And we're just going to keep looking at more movies, trying new themes. we got all kinds of stuff. Like I've said before, I've got a giant spreadsheet full of movies and themes to do, so... Uh, there ain't no stopping here. Hey, you know what? It is uh, This episode's 41. We're getting close to 50. And you know what 50 means? That's halfway to 100. And that's exciting. 100 episodes, could you imagine? Uh, anyway, I guess that may be more exciting for me than you guys. But anyway, so today we are continuing our Ingmar Bergman theme, which I didn't talk about last week, but it's kind of like this theme of like, you know, hey, you haven't seen that? You know. Uh, it's going to be like a, an overarching theme that we're going to be doing back and forth uh, throughout uh, the podcast where every once in a while I'll, I'll stop looking into weird movies or something and, and look into some classics, some movies that uh, I should have seen by now and I haven't. Uh, but, you know, there's always, like I said before, there's always movies you should have seen. And, you know, that's the fun of it. I want there to be movies that I haven't seen that I should have seen because that means that I eventually... I can get to them. You know, if I've watched every movie ever, then what am I going to do? Like, uh, there would be no point for the podcast. So, uh, anyway, continuing on this uh, theme, we are looking at our second movie, and we're kind of going in reverse order. So, um, you know, I-, I knew that his most famous movie is The Seventh Seal, and that came out in 1958. Uh, and so, and I also knew of Persona. And I've, you know, I've looked through his discography a few times. I've seen a couple movies that looked really interesting. And so I decided to start at the later movie of Persona. And then go backwards in time until we get to Seventh Seal. So today we are talking about Through a Glass Darkly from 1961. So we're kind of going back in time a little bit here. And uh, wow, there's a, there's a lot I want to get to. So I might as well just start off with the synopsis so that you kind of have an orientation before I get into my thoughts of the movie. So basically it's pretty simple. Uh, there's a, a character, Karen or Karen who has just gotten back from a mental institution. And the movie kind of follows her and her family dynamics between her husband or boyfriend. I don't think they really specify. Maybe they do. Uh, but the, the, her husband and then her her dad and then her younger brother. Uh, and it basically follows just their dynamics. And then as she kind of relapses back into insanity. So at the beginning of the movie, you're, she's kind of like in good spirits. She's a bit manic maybe. Uh, but she seems pretty normal, and and the way that the characters talk, uh, the dad and the husband, they kind of talk about her like, uh, you know, like a little more gravely than what it seems. You're you're thinking like, you know, they're like, oh yeah, she's it's incurable, or or she's got a mental uh, health issue that's not going to go away. Uh, and whereas you see her and you're like, she seems fine, but that's the kind of the point is that it goes up and down. And when you start the movie, it's at the up, and then as the movie goes on, you see the down. And wow, how interesting um, at 1961 to see a movie uh, tackle mental health and mental illness in in a way that is um, pretty constructive, I would say. I mean, there's a lot of destruction within that mental illness, but when I say constructive, I mean in a way that is sober, in a way that is not giving in to the conventions of the time. I mean, 1961, I wasn't alive during that time. I know some things, you know, history and all that. And from my knowledge, there was still a lot of barbaric practices going on when it came to mental illness and people who had mental illnesses, uh, psych wards and and uh, sanatoriums and stuff were still in full swing. Uh, it wasn't until, what, the 80s or something like that until, or even later. I mean, there's that place, Cropsey. They didn't shut that place down until, like, early 2000s or late 90s or something. And that was just absolutely horrible, the way that the uh, mental patients were being treated. 
the the point is is that uh, the entire public idea of what mental health was at the time was a far cry from what it is today. And now people with schizophrenia and other types of very debilitating mental illnesses uh, are able to live pretty normal lives as long as they stay on their meds and, you know, they do the work. But during this time, someone who was showing the kinds of mental illness that uh, Karen is showing in this movie, uh, they, they could, depending on the family, they could very easily be locked away to never come out. You know, they would just live the rest of their life in an institution or be lobotomized or both. So, you know, there's really not a lot of good options for people with uh, schizophrenia and schizophrenic kind of uh, schizoid personality disorders, stuff like that. It's very, uh, it's a very upsetting thing to have, obviously, and it's very reality breaking. And that's one of the things I liked about this movie, too, is I felt like Bergman was taking the mental illness of Karen and kind of playing with everybody else's uh, view of reality as well. So we, we have a breakdown of the characters here. So you have the father uh, of Min Minos, you know, spelled like Minus, but uh, they, you know, Minos and uh, Karen, uh, who is a writer, he's a very famous writer, and he seems to be, you know, kind of spin, he's very aloof and callous, and he kind of spins all of, he's, he's very nice up front, but at the same time, he spends a lot of time away from this kind of fishing hamlet that they live on. Uh, it's like kind of like a really beautiful, we'll get to that later, but it's like a beautiful little homestead on the coast of, I'm guessing, Sweden. So he just came back from Switzerland just around the time that Karen is coming back from this mental ward. And it's kind of a reunion of sorts that starts off really positive. But by the first dinner, they're kind of having uh, not arguments, but there's some sadness kind of coming out. And a lot of that comes from the fact that the dad is going to leave again. He's only going to stay for a month while he finishes his book. And then he's going to go off and do some tour in Yugoslavia. And obviously the kids are just not very happy about it. Um, because they want to be with their dad, but he seems to be kind of, it, you, you kind of get the sense that maybe he's running away from something that's very hard, something that's going on. And as time goes on, obviously you can put together that it is the, is Karen's mental illness is not helping. And on top of that, he's having his own existential crises. A common theme uh, so far with the Bergman films, uh, the two that I have seen, uh, there are some parallels to Persona, but this movie was actually surprisingly different. I was, uh, I was kind of pleasantly surprised that this movie was so different than Persona. And for one thing, it actually had a coherent story, a very coherent story, in fact. It never really lost the narrative, and I thought that was really interesting as well, uh, considering that Persona is so kind of out there. So while there are some comparable parts, there's a lot of things that contrast these films, and I, and I really enjoy that. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So, right, you got the father, who's a little aloof and callous, and he's got his own issues. Then you've got uh, her husband, Karen's husband, who's played by, it's our first movie of the Bergmans that's played by Max von Sydow, or however you say his name, Sydow. Uh, he's in like a bunch of Bergman movies, and he's in uh, The Seventh Seal, which is the next movie we're doing, and his most famous. And so uh, his ca his character Martin is the kind of the dutiful husband. He's like a doctor, and he he just loves Karen, even though Karen is like um, basically doomed with this mental illness. Uh, he just loves her no matter what and, and will do anything for her despite her kind of pushing back. And through his lens, we kind of get to see how difficult it can be to be a loved one who is in complete support of a, someone who is, um, you know, going insane. I mean, quite literally. And uh, you see how difficult that can be. Uh, as much as he is kind of, I mean, he is as stalwart as you can be as a partner and a husband, and you still see how difficult it is. I mean, even if he kind of handles it with a certain stoicism, 
Uh, so that's an interesting perspective going on here. And then you have uh, Minas, the son, and he is, or the, the younger brother. And that whole situation is very interesting um, because she is kind of like obsessing over him a little bit. She's kind of confiding into him, but because of her mental illness, she's kind of like taking it a little too far and it gets a little gross. There's nothing explicit, but there definitely is implications of uh, some inappropriate behavior on her part that it culminates towards the end. And it's just very, uh, it's very upsetting, but it also proves this point of like someone uh, in the throes of mental illness and how they do, they are kind of forced to do things that they don't really like in their conscious, uh, more conscious life they would never do. Uh, you know, when she is in this schizoid uh, kind of break, she is thinking in a completely different way. Her, her entire reality has changed. And, uh, and that is kind of exemplified by uh, the way that she treats her, her younger brother. And he is going through his own existential crises. Uh, he's very much like his father. He writes plays, whereas his father writes uh, novels. And he is very much invested in getting his father's approval. And there's a kind of a, you know, a lot, a lot of his art comes down to the fact that his father doesn't stay around and it doesn't give him really the time of day. Uh, not really. He acts nice and they do things together, but he's still just so he's just passive. He's very aloof. And uh, it, it's kind of that's a really interesting dynamic there because he is really nice on the surface. The father is. But his actions and his his actions and his demeanor are two different things. Like he's very nice, but at the same time, he's always leaving. He doesn't engage. He doesn't really ask his son like personal questions about himself and stuff like that. And you can tell that that weighs on the sun. So as you can tell, even though there's only about five people in this movie, it is, uh, or maybe it's just four. Yeah. There's four characters throughout the entire movie. And it is just like a very deep character study. I mean, each character has so much depth to them. They have so many things going on. I'd say Martin, the husband is probably the least depth, you know, but he's kind of He's kind of made to be a placeholder of, of a certain idea. And so even that is interesting in its own right. But Karen, uh, the father, and Minas all have a very complicated and fleshed out character development. And I really appreciated that. We'll get into a little bit later about what the movie might mean, all that kind of stuff, of course, uh, because it is something I, I'm, I'm trying to kind of organize myself in this movie because there is like there's a lot more to hold on to in this movie than persona a lot more things where i can say like this is what it means or at least this is what it means to me uh, this is what it seems to mean whereas persona was a little more wooey wooey you're just kind of like oh uh, you know like i talked about last week it means what you think it means and even the director didn't know this has a much more pointed theme and like there are multiple themes but i think they're they're a little bit more cohesive this time than persona which was i think a little bit more of from what i've been reading about persona it seems uh for bergman it was a bit of a catharsis for him it was kind of a therapeutic project i think he apparently he was sick or something and was recovering in a beach house and once again so that kind of inspired him and since he was recovering for a long time he spent that time writing the, the movie all kind of in one go and so i think that there is a bit of like uh what do you call it where he's just kind of like throwing everything out in his brain and letting it just play out how it does which is really cool it's kind of like uh, like fancy new york spider paint artist that's just throwing stuff on the wall there's that really famous artist that i i can't remember his name but you know he just like they he or she i can't remember it just globs paint over and over and over again on on a portrait and it's like you know supposed to be super high art um which i'm sure maybe you could say that, that it is but i i feel like that's what persona is uh, whereas this movie is much more precise and concise, like the the themes are a lot more tangible, even though they are a little bit more high minded than your average movie. 
Um, but at the same time, it's something that you can kind of get your head around. Uh, so anyway, uh, technically, I want to talk about the technical aspects of this movie versus like Persona, for example. So last week I talked about how uh, the black and white I love, but the, the it was more grayscale. It was more overexposed, not overexposed, but just very exposed. And so in contrast to that, this film, Through a Glass Darkly, is a lot more uh, of that type of lighting that I really enjoy, which is very high contrast, you know, impressionistic in a way. There's definitely moments within this film that the lighting is being used for dramatic effect and for conceptual effect as well. I mean, I, I would go through all the examples, but I'd have to go scene by scene and and that would just that's just not the kind of podcast we're doing. But there's definitely one example uh, of this this scene within the main area of the house like it's kind of like the main room of the house that they live on and there's this door there's double doors that's being used a lot throughout the movie and it's always like slightly open and you can see just like this beam of light coming in and then there's always a window on the right that's shooting light in from the side and i really enjoyed that because there are moments when uh characters like uh, towards the end uh, martin the husband is, is looking for karen she's kind of run away and he looks outside and then comes back in and then walks out off screen towards the right, towards the window. And you see his silhouette kind of cast along the wall on the left, um, kind of opposite of him. And it was a really effective shot. I think it was really affecting to me. And uh, it, it indicated that they're they're trying to say something. I'm not exactly sure what it, what it was, uh, to be honest. But it was very um, pleasing at the very least and, and, and a sign of good craft. Uh, also, like I said, the contrast is better. There's a lot of scenes that take place kind of at dusk, it seems like. You know, it's hard to tell in black and white. But the first, like, 30 minutes of the movie, most the, for the most part, takes place in the first night that they are there. And uh, the, the day kind of gets darker as it goes. It's kind of starting at, at dusk and then getting towards the night. And they hold this little play that the son has made, has written for his father. And when they, it's kind of lit by these lamps on the front of the stage. And they take the lamps as they walk back into the house when they're done. And I really love that shot because it was just like that, the, the, the bright lumin, luminous kind of glow from the lamps uh, kind of hitting them personally as each one of them has one and they're and they're walking in the dark towards the house and then in the background what's still really bright is the sea that's outside that's out there so you can kind of see the seascape in between the house and like kind of like an outhouse or like a boathouse uh, in the background and there's a ton of great shots of the coast with the sea in the background and maybe sometimes there's like a lighthouse there's an old broken down ship that has a scene in it and that is beautiful the way that that's contrasted is amazing it's kind of like a creepy but also just like visually pleasing like graveyard with inside the actual ship there's like a plank in between the two busted out parts that they're like walking on to get around. And, and there's a, you know, a good section of the last bit of the movie is in that very well lit setting. Um, but anyway, so yeah, there's tons of great establishing shots where I talked about last week with persona. Uh, it was mostly just inside a beach house and sometimes they would go in and out. And then there would even be transitions where you, you don't even know where you are. It's very disorienting. That movie is part, as far as the setting goes, it's very closed up. Um, it's very like intimate movie where most of the, a lot of the shots are very closed and uh, you, you're not really meant to be uh, seeing a lot of the setting um, establishing shots are just like not there. It's very, very different than this movie, whereas the this whole area, like I, I've said before, I love when a setting is also kind of the a character and it definitely feels that way. This kind of really quiet fishing hamlet 
coastal haven honestly it's a little rundown but it it definitely feels really cozy and it seems like if they were in better times or if she wasn't dealing with this it would just be such a pleasant place to live where a lot of happy times could be had and i think part of the story in some ways maybe through the subtext is kind of the mourning of like a family that has no ill will towards each other but yet can't function very well the dad has his hang-ups the mother is dead and she kind of had the same mental illnesses as as Karen does. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of love from Martin towards the entire family. The husband uh, loves the entire family, even though he kind of resents the father for not being a very good father. Uh, and then the, the youngest son is I mean, he's bright. He's he's smart and he, he definitely has very good feelings towards the family. But there's just all these things in the way. And I think that's part of it, too, is like the destruction of of a somewhat functioning family because of this mental illness and how how hard it is to to function as a family when someone doesn't even know where they are in reality or or they keep getting pulled into another reality and that goes to kind of more to the points of the movie right so so karen's mental illness she keeps going upstairs into this one room where she's feeling or she's hearing these voices that are calling to her and she feels like as they're calling to her that she could just kind of melt into the wall. And once she does, there's like this door and she knows if the door opens that he, she keeps saying he will show himself. And, and that's what the voices are telling her the, the people that are in this room that she, when she goes into the wall, there's this room full of people and they're telling her he is coming. Once the door opens, he is coming. And they're talking to her and she thinks like, is it God? Who is he? And so the idea I think in general is to think that it is God. There's a lot of God talk in this movie. It's very, uh, it's very existential God talk. It's not so much religious as it is kind of spiritual. But this psychological break that she's having for her obviously is very real, and she's kind of and she's aware enough to know that people would think it's crazy, and so she kind of hides it a little bit. Not in toward, towards the end where she really starts losing it. Um, but I think that was a really interesting point uh, that they make in the movie is kind of. Uh, how she even says this great line where she says uh, how horrible it is to understand your own confusion. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the idea is like she knows in her lucid moments that she is confused and that she can, can, she keeps talking about these two worlds that she feels like she has to choose between. And I could obviously be talking out of my butt here, but I feel like a schizophrenic person or someone who has like a certain schizoid uh, affective disorder, they would, they, they would maybe really uh, understand that and maybe resonate with that kind of line because, you know, just because you're schizophrenic doesn't mean you're always lost in the throes of schizophrenia. Uh, you have moments of lucidity and, um, and nowadays with treatment and stuff like that, you, you know, you, you may get off your meds and you may lose it a little bit and, and, you know, get back on. And so it's kind of this, always this tussle with this other world that she keeps talking about. And at some point she just decides like, basically I want to live in the other world because this world seems too too hard to deal with. I'm, I'm tired of going back and forth. I kind of just want to choose one or the other. And she chooses the schizophrenia world, uh, which is more fantastical, of course. And, and they're not judging her in the way that she feels maybe that the rest of the family is. Or maybe she resents, too, being taken care of the way that she is. She speaks uh, towards the beginning about feeling like a child again. And I think I think uh, it could definitely resonate with other people, too, like with the idea of like any kind of illness, but like being being kind of weighted on hand and foot. Some people like that, but some people really don't. And and to have people have to take care of you, you feel like a burden, there's guilt involved. She'd rather just go into this other reality where, you know, and, and, and take it off of their hands. 
And um, so that's really interesting too. I mean, obviously I'm getting towards 20 minutes and I mean, I could just, I honestly could go on. There's so many different parts because each character is having their own interaction with philosophical ideas. You've got um, the father who feels like reality is too hard. He feels like he's cursed with reality where she is in a way supposed to be cursed with this fake reality. He feels like reality is too sobering to him. He feels too sober in the world, and he feels like there's he's very nihilistic. He doesn't feel like that the world is really much at all, and it isn't towards a suicide until he admits about a suicide attempt later that he realized right before he was going to die that like there is a little bit of love in the world, and that's what's interesting too about this movie is that as cynical as the ending uh, seems to be, the last scene is a lot less so, and I really appreciated that because I was already you know I'm always thinking in my head about what I think about this movie as I'm watching it, which is probably not a great idea. But anyway, towards the end, like it seems like the last scene and I'm like, mm, this, this is a good movie, but it's very, very sad. It's very just like, not nihilistic, but just like, it just, it, it's, it's really not a pick me up. Uh, but then the last scene happens. There's like an extra scene, a dialogue between the son and the dad. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens, but I will say that it, it, it turns the entire concept around and kind of, tilts it into a good light uh and so yeah i mean th there's not really many spoilers that you can have in this movie so i don't really feel bad for talking opening about openly about it by the way uh because it's just some of those movies that you kind of have to just experience uh there's a lot of themes that because you may even look at this movie a completely way different way than i did i think it's a little bit more pointed than persona but at the same time it does leave room for interpretation so yeah i think a lot of the movie is about what reality means to us and how hard reality can be and our desire to maybe escape it sometimes. But at the same time, it's also about how about love. It's about how love can make even the most like horrifying experience a little bit more bearable or at least have a positive tilt to it. A, a positive tilt that is actually redemptive in its base nature. So what I mean, that's really like wordy, but what I mean is the fact that love exists at all even in in the smallest or the biggest forms is kind of proof that it's not all darkness that nihilism can't really exist i guess at least that's the way i i, I saw it um and then also i think as far as themes go there's also just the idea of mental illness it's it's shining a light on uh, mental illnesses in a in a way that is super ahead of its time it also shows how scary it is to be in the throes of a schizophrenic break. And at this time, I don't know the medical history behind lithium and different types of uh, treatments for schizophrenic disorders. But I do feel like even if there were medicines at the time that could help, they weren't readily available. They weren't easy to find. And so there really is this sense that she will not get better. There is like no stabilization. The only thing that she can do is have certain medications that will sedate her and keep her kind of calm. Uh, and then she even says at one point uh, when they're going to take her back to the hospital, she says, I don't, I don't want any medication. I just want to be at the hospital. I don't want to have any meds. I just want to like kind of let it fly. Which very interesting idea. I, I, I think whatever meds they are giving her are probably not very fun. They probably just put her into a zombie state. And she's just like, I'd rather be in this like fan fanciful schizophrenic state than be just like a zombie. And I can, you know, I can understand that, obviously, especially at the time. So, yeah, there's just like, I think it's just really like enlightening um, for nowadays. I mean, this is nothing like too new. I mean, we see mental health being represented in a better light. 
a lot more these days. But for 1961 to have a movie that's this enlightened and sober, like I said before, it's just very like outside of the conventions of the time uh, and pretty progressive thinking, I guess, would be a good way to put it uh, for its time. And I, I just really appreciated that. I mean, I, obviously, I really like this movie. I, I didn't realize I liked it so much until... Um, I started talking about it just now, but I mean, I, I know I really liked it. I knew I liked it maybe just a little bit more than Persona, but now I'm thinking I like it a lot. Like, there's just so much to get into. Like, I, I've probably like I'm gonna stop myself because I, I'm running out of time. But like, I really could just keep going on. I would love to have someone else on to talk about this movie with because there's just so much to discuss. A uh, very good movie. I think I'm gonna give it a nine out of ten. Uh, because there was just so much to chew on. It was very beautifully shot. It was more beautifully shot than Persona. It gives you about just as much to interpret, if not maybe a little bit less uh, open-ended, but it's still tons to kind of talk about. And the character development is a lot better because I think the point in Persona is that the character was not very developed because she was kind of forming with another person and so maybe there was character development of course but there just wasn't a narrative like there is in this and each character you could do a study on like I could write about each one and uh, multiple pages of a paper on each character I mean and that's a really good indication of a deep movie and a movie that's really good so nine out of ten uh wow I mean I wasn't expecting to like this movie that much I'm just gonna be honest like I really just didn't think that it was gonna be that good and I just really enjoyed it I thought it was very effective it was technically amazing the acting was really good the story was really well made the script was incredible uh it it just on all fronts it's pretty much just an an incredible movie so definitely gonna be watching this again at some point or showing it to people or something because it's just really interesting uh, but yeah, so that's it for this week. Uh, next week, we are going to do the movie, the Bergman movie, The Seventh Seal. And we're going to see what it's all about because I've heard about it my whole life and it's time to actually sit down and watch this thing. So yeah, I hope you guys have a great week this week and I will see you next Friday.